Do you have a favorite court TV show that you like to watch? Neither do I, but I do remember when I was younger, after school I would go by and visit my grandfather, and he would either have on the television the soap operas or some court TV show. Now, I never cared to ask too much about the soap operas because I really didn't care too much about those. But the court TV shows, that was something different. And it was something about those that kind of intrigued me. You know, it seemed like that back and forth, this side against that side, um, one side arguing that dispute, just both sides just trying to win the argument in order to win some type of reward in the case. But ultimately, the most best part of that was the end. You see, on those court TV shows, there is no jury. There's only one judge. And oftentimes, I could be that judge also, sitting right there in my living room. But unlike court TV, we know that God is the ultimate judge. And we've seen all throughout the minor prophets where God is just in his judgments and that God shows his love and his mercy to all. And today, as we look at the book of Malachi, we will examine many disputes. And sometimes it may seem like a court case. You may hear claims from God, and then you may hear a dispute from the people. And then you will hear another response from God. And then you will see this repeatedly. Throughout the journey of the minor prophets, we have been challenged. We have learned a lot. We have learned more about God. We have learned about the history of Israel. Hopefully we have learned about what history was like when before they was exiled and after they was exiled. Now we have a time to see a period of time, about 100 years, once they have returned back from Babylon. This is when the prophet Malachi speaks to the people. In this prophecy, prayerfully we will be challenged and prayerfully we will grow in our faith towards him. Let's look at it. Now, we don't know much about the prophet Malachi. We don't know much about his background. We're not told who his parents are. We don't know where he lived and we do not know even for sure when it was written. But we do have a good indication that it was sometime around the rule of the Persian Empire. But one thing we do know is his name. And we know that there are meanings in names. The name Malachi means my messenger. And this messenger sent from the Lord is sent to give a message to his people. A message of love, a message of truth. Malachi is the last of the minor prophets. It's the last message that the people will hear of the Old Testament. To help us understand the text of the book of Malachi, it is it's important to understand the structure. It is, uh, could be difficult, but if you just learn the pattern, it could be quite simple to read. Not necessarily understand, but to read. You see, it's set up in a series of conversations, a conversation between God and a conversation between the people. You see, first, God will state a claim. The people will respond, oftentimes disagreeing. God will respond to their disagreement and explain why his, his claim is true. This cycle repeats six times throughout the book of Malachi. This morning, we will look at the first three disputes. Let us look into our Bible, Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And it says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have, I, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, 
but we will rebuild the rooms. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. The Oracle of Malachi, it says, the burden, the call that God speaks to the people, to Malachi. Malachi starts off this first dispute right off with God saying, I have loved you, stayed in this claim. Now, I don't know about you when, but if the Lord Almighty says he has loved me, I mean, that would be of great feeling of gratitude, but this was not the case. But let's look at the word loved. When we look at that word love, we, we might look at it and read it as past tense. But we're talking about God here. This is past and present. This is God saying in essence, I have loved you and I will continue to love you. So God said, I have loved you, but the people says with doubt, how have you loved us? In so many words, this is showing their hardness of heart towards him. How have you loved us, God, they're saying. And he says to them, is not Esau Jacob's brother? So basically here, God is proving his claim by having them be reminded of two brothers, Jacob and Esau. If you recall, you can read in Genesis chapter 25, the story of Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac is Abraham's son. Isaac took Rebekah as his wife. However, that was a problem. Rebekah was barren. Isaac knew that this was a huge um, burden upon his wife, so he inquired upon the Lord. He prayed to the Lord on behalf of Rebekah. He prayed that she would conceive. The Lord heard his prayers, and Rebekah was able to conceive. But in the midst of that term of carrying the children, she went to inquire of the Lord, I feel something within my womb, some struggling within. And God told her in Genesis verse 23 that two nations are in your womb and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall be served the younger. Now, we have to think about this. What God is saying here, this is not common practice for the younger to be in control of the older. This is not common practice for the younger to get the blessing. But this is what God chose. You see, and God saying that he wants to choose Jacob is a reminder of to the people of Israel that he has chosen their forefather to love, their forefather to have a covenant with. And that covenant love flows down even to their line. However, the people still doubted that, saying they, they are looking at their circumstances. They are seeing what Edom is saying. They, they know that Edom right now is in ruins. However, they know that the threat of the Edomites, the, the Edomites are saying that we will rebuild. But the Lord says, no, they may rebuild, but I will tear down and call them a wicked country. Just reminding them that regardless of what they do, they will become and remain the people that he despised. And the people of Israel will remain the people that he loved. Now, finding it hard to accept this blessing, they 
just look at the circumstances. Oftentimes, it's a symbolization of oftentimes of what we do. Now, we may not uh, openly question God's love, but our circumstances sometimes may cause us to doubt. But we are to be reminded that God loves never ceases. God's love never falls short. God's love is never ending. See, the truth of the matter is that God's people need reminders that he has an ultimate love for us. Sometimes we may not feel like he loves us, but the truth of the matter is that he does. Sometimes our circumstances may put us in a, a, a position of lowliness, a position of, of aloneness, where we may not feel any love from anyone, and certainly not from God. Well, just as the people of Israel were reminded about their past, we too shall be reminded of our past to help us in those times when we may not feel that God loves us. Now, when we say or doubt that God loves us, we may not say, God, how have you loved us? But we may use a verbiage such as, well, God, if you love me, well, why is this? Why is that? God, well, if you love me, why am I struggling right now? Well, God, if you love me, why am I having problems with my health? God, if you love me, why am I stuck in this job? Well, God, if you love me, why? We all have a dot, dot, dot. We all have reasons or things that we can ask God. We have questions. But the truth of the matter is that we cannot let our circumstances dictate the truth for the matter that God loves us. During those times, it's helpful to be around a community of believers who can affirm us, who can affirm God's love for us, who can affirm his presence in our lives. It's important to recollect uh, what has, he has done in the past. It's important to recollect on some of the storms that we have been through and been able to overcome because of his grace, because of his mercy. And it's important too, during these times, as all times, to seek him in prayer, to read his word, to seek truth, to fill our hearts, to renew our minds and what is right, to reposition our thinking from things that are not of God to things that are of God. It is important to also recognize that we will all get proof when we have doubt. In verse 5, it says, Your eyes shall see this, you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel, meaning that Regardless of what the situation looks like or how you may feel in about God's love, in due time and God's sovereignty, he will provide a proof for you and for others of his love for you. So just remember, God's love never ceases. The second dispute deals with the defiling of the temple and the unfaithfulness of the priests and allowing the false worship to take place. Let us read in verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I... If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, of priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Now, this brings up an interesting scenario. God is saying, a son honor his father 
A servant honors his master. Look, if I am your father, why don't you honor me? If I am your master, why don't you show me reverence? If I am your master, why don't you show reverence to the things that I make holy? But instead, instead of showing me reverence, you defile my name. And you even go and ask, how have I defiled your name? Well, he says, they have defiled their name by allowing the people to bring empty sacrifices as offering to the temple. Now, there were strict rules in the kind of sacrifices that they brought. The first requirement were, they for, were to bring their first and their best. But this was not the case here. They were bringing the lame. They were bringing the blind. They were bringing the sick. And, and most guilty of all of this is the priests who allowed this. Now, furthermore, the Lord's table was polluted. Because if we read in verse 13, it says, But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has taken by the violence or the lame of sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept this from your hand? So not only were they bringing the lame and the sick or the blind, they were bringing those things that were stolen also. And then the people had the nerve, the umption to say that they were weary, that they were burdened down. They were somewhat uh, tied down and tired of having to do this ritual, having to, and they now they're seeing this as an actual chore. Now, this is a dangerous spot to be in because something that was so pure, something that God means to be holy has now been defiled, has now been polluted because of their hearts, because this is a heart of the matter. Their attitudes has changed from an attitude of honor and worship towards God, and now it has become an attitude of burden and wearisome. It is terrible and downright tragic, tragic when we come to see worship as a sense of obligation and not coming with a sense of a willing heart. You see, when we come to worship with the false motives, with a heart that is not willing, that is not postured correctly, that is not willing to worship God in spirit and in truth, we're being hypocrites. And hypocrisy leads into a downward cycle. First, a hypocrisy may deceive others. But after a while, the hypocrisy turns into self-deceiving. And once you become self-deceived by your own hypocrisy, it's nothing but destruction after that. That is definitely a danger that we all face. And it's something we have to combat, something we have to intentionally evaluate in our hearts. Is our worship in vain? Am I worshiping out of obligation? Am I coming to worship because I don't want others to talk about me if I don't show up? Am I serving in a ministry because I'm afraid of what the ministry leader may say about me if I decide to step down? Am I coming to worship ready to serve, ready to hear, ready to praise, or am I ready to leave even before I hit the door? When I sit and hear the preaching, am I listening for understanding? Am I listening with an intention to carry out the call of action? Or am I just coming to be entertained? Or am I coming to just to get a nice hot cup of coffee or catch up on the latest gossip? These are all 
things that we may wrestle with, things that we may be guilty of. These are all things that we should be aware of because God does not honor true worship. He requires worship, true worship from us. Now, there is consequences from false worship. In the scripture, it tells that false worship results in a curse. It results in the curse of those who are committing that false worship and also those who are connected to them. And the sacrificial giving of, the, of that day, ultimately, God wants his um, sacrificial instructions followed. But it's not necessarily the sacrifice that God really looks at. It is the motives. It is the heart. So that is, that is my question for you today. What is your motives? What is your heart in worship? And we know that the Lord will not tolerate phony worship. However, he may be merciful. He may have held back the consequences because of this. But do not take it for granted as if he has turned his eye or is asleep or cannot hear or does not know or does not evaluate what your true heart is. Regardless of what this evaluation of heart means for any of us, it is important to know and understand that God requires more. The posture of our heart is what matters to God. Again, the posture of our heart is what matters to God. So an honest question would be, well, how are we to worship? Well, this is something I have to wrestle with, and this is something that I know you may have to worship also. But one illustration that has helped me, just lend me your ear for a second, I'll share a brief story that has helped me come to understand and realign my thinking of true worship. You see, there was a revival going on in New Mexico. And there was an old man who came one night to the town, to the town meeting. And during the preaching, during the service, during the singing, his heart was transformed. He felt a change. When it was time for the offering plate to be passed down, and when it got to him, he leaned over to the usher and asked, can you, can you lower the plate down a little? Confused, the usher, understandably, lowered it down, not knowing what his intentions were. And again, he asked again, can you lower the plate down a little more? Now, seemingly getting agitated, the usher lowered it down. And this repeated a couple more times until ultimately the offering plate ended on the floor. Once the offering plate was on the floor, the man got up and stepped into the plate and said, this is all I have to offer, all of me. And that was a beautiful example because God in worship, that's what he requires, all of you. He requires your heart, your mind, your soul, and all your strength. The people of Malachi had a blueprint of what this would look like. And that was found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. It said, you should say, I love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. What better gift than just giving God yourself? Give God your life. Now, we may have to individually ask ourselves, like, are we just going through the motions? Am I just doing this just to feel better? Am I giving God my best? If I'm giving God my best time, am I giving God my best creativity? One place to start in reevaluating our posture, our hearts and worship is to understand that worship does not start at a certain place. It does not take place at a certain time. 
It is not a Sunday or a Wednesday thing. In fact, it is an every day, every hour, every minute, every second. It is a lifestyle of obedience to God. That is true worship. Furthermore, as we start chapter 2, still concerning the matter of the unfaithfulness of the priests, God warns the priests of their continued unfaithfulness. That if they did not listen and take heart to what he's saying, that he would curse them. He said, indeed, I would curse your blessings. And in fact, I have already cursed your blessings. Then God highlights what worship should look like. What true worship should look like on behalf of the priests. The priests should practice peace. They should be true in their instruction. They should be a people who would turn people away from iniquity. That will point people to God. They should be a people that will uphold the standards, that will uphold the laws. He was even recollected of the covenant that God had with their forefathers, the people of Levi, who held up their end of the covenant, who worshiped God with peace and with love. And ultimately, they were blessed for that. Now, it is important to recognize and know that, yes, the shepherds, um, pastors, leaders, teachers, apostles, those in authority, yes, we will be held and higher authority, according to the scripture. But in 1 Peter 2.9, I must remind you that we said that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now remember, we are all called to be priests in your home, in your neighborhood, in your school, at your workplace. Your life should be an example of what it looks like to follow God. Others should come to you and know that you are a follower of Christ, someone who they can come to and ask questions about God, someone who they can come to and seek guidance. And you should, can, should be the person who helped them turn away from sin. In the first dispute, the Lord's love was doubted. In the second dispute, the Lord's name was despised and the Lord's table was defiled by the priests. Now, as we transition to the third dispute, it is a clear picture of the people's unfaithfulness to God and to others. Let us read in chapter 2 of Malachi, verses 10 through 16. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithful to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which loves and has marred the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it, and with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and your wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is not your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithful to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves 
in your spirit and do not be faithless. In the third dispute, God makes this claim that the people are guilty of idolatry and defiling the covenant of, of marriage by the repeated act of divorce. Now, the people responded, how so? And he tells them, I have been a witness of this. I have seen how you have taken wives of foreign nations and left the wives of your youth, left your covenant, disavowed your vows, and divorced them, your wives, to marry strange wives of other nations. And in so, you have done the thing that has been a complete abomination and something that I had definitely already warned you of, but you despise me. You despise my instruction. For they were already told, we must realize, they, the people was already told not to marry outside of the nation. Because God told them that if this was to happen, they would eventually begin to worship the idols of that nation. And that was happening. Once they divorced their wives, they married wives of other nations. And before long, they was worshiping idols of those nations also. Now, this is great distress upon God's covenant. And this is twofold. One, it is the grace of his covenant because he told them not to marry outside of the race, meaning the nation of Israel. And this was important because God wanted to keep his godly seed pure, his godly offspring. He wanted to ensure that the seed that would bring forth his son to the earth would be from the line of Israel. Secondly, they defiled the covenant of marriage itself in choosing to intermarry with other foreign nations and divorce their wives. Now, if you were married, we know that God honors marriage. Marriage is sacred. Marriage requires sacrifice. Marriage com requires intimate commitment. Being reminded of your marriage vows is helpful. Man and woman should strive daily to fear God in their marriage. Man and woman should strive daily to seek peace, to seek oneness, to seek a spirit of oneness, the one that God originally ordained for them. The reality of today is that divorce is common. You see, in our culture, divorce is acceptable. Commitment to others is, has taken a lowly precedent. Instead, a commitment to success, a commitment to pride, a commitment to money, a commitment to power, or commitment to our self-pleasures um, and desires have taken precedence over the commitment to others. This is not the order that God ordained. If you are in a storm in your marriage, let me encourage you. Seek God sincerely in this and know that God honors marriage. To those that have experienced divorce, and there is no doubt that the pain and the burden, the hurt that comes with divorce is something that is unimaginable. And those who have experienced divorce know that the divorce and the hurt and the pain that comes with that did not only affect you, but also others connected to you. It may have affected your children or affected other loved ones. We know that divorce breaks hearts and crushes spirits. But let me encourage you also that God does not hate you or love you any less. In fact, in Psalm 34, 18, says that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Meaning that God has compassion in your pain. 
in the pain, know that God is loving you. God is continually holding you in his hands. Let me encourage you to go, continue to obey, continue to walk faithfully and truthfully in him. Overall, the part of this text is not just for married people. This text can be applied rather if you're married, rather if you're single, divorced, or widowed. If you look at it overall, this is talking about a commitment to others. Because ultimately, how we are committed to others, how we interact in our relationships with others, mirrors our commitment to God. If we honor our mother and father, it's a good indication that we honor our father, our heavenly father. If we honor our, our spouse, it's a good indication that we honor our heavenly father also. What about our friends? What about our brothers and sisters? Our blood brothers and sisters, our brothers and sisters in Christ. What about how we honor the relationships with those we may not formally know, but we still come in passing with? These are all relationships that can mirror our relationship with God. Remind, we are reminded that how we deal with God's treasured possession, his people, is a good indication of our posture towards him. Just imagine the perfect love for the perfect love of a father for his children and how he must feel if some of his children are not treating others the way they should or causing some of their children pain. Wouldn't that father feel the same pain? I believe so. Just a reminder, our commitment to others in our relationships mirrors our commitment to God. Now, if you recall earlier, when I was talking about my early infatuation of TV court cases, you see, since then, I have actually come to kind of dislike those and really despise them. This is ultimately because I have come to understand and accept the fact that the judge really doesn't have any real authority. However, I do know someone who has true authority, and that's the Lord Almighty. As we looked at the three disputes, we saw how the people questioned God's love for them. We saw how people questioned how were their worship polluting the temple. We saw how the priests questioned how they were defiling the Lord's table. And we also see how the people were defiling God's covenant of marriage and turned to idol worship. Through all the, the myths, through all the, the mess that God is showing us through this book of Malachi, we should also be encouraged that there is hope. There is hope of a coming Messiah. And we will talk more about that next week as we look at the next three disputes. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for this opportunity and to go through the book of Malachi, the first three disputes in times where we may feel like you may not be there for us. In times we may feel doubt. Remind us that you are here. Remind us that you do love us, that your love never ceases. Lord, show us where we may be idle in our worship, where we may just be going through the motions. Evaluate our hearts. Show us where we need to reverence you more. Show us in our lives what we need to put off. Show us what we need to put on. And God, just help us in our commitments to others, Lord God. 
help us to be reminded of how we relate to others is uh, mirrors how we relate to you, Lord. And we just, just thank you and we just do ask for our trespasses and that we are guilty of these things at times, Lord. But we are seeking you for strength to grow and to love and honor you and to give you all the glory that you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.